Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. We're getting the episode up a little late this week, Tuesday instead of Monday. A couple reasons. One, my weekend was nuts. Good, but crazy. Two, it's International Women's Day. And what better way to celebrate International Women's Day than with the first, the, the leader of the first women's team to climb the Seven Summits, uh, Nepali native Shaili Bosnet. Uh, on the show. And I thought, how freaking perfect is that to be talking to probably one of the coolest, most accomplished, most incredible women on the planet uh, for International Women's Day, doing something that was by definition international, the seven summits, the highest summit on every continent. Their story uh, of these 10 women is absolutely mind-boggling what they were able to accomplish. And Shiley is such a ball of energy and good and a a force to be reckoned with. And so uh, she she first climbed Mount Everest in 2008, and she's going to tell us some stories. I tried to to talk about things that aren't often talked about in her story uh, because they've been interviewed so many times. So I, I really encourage you to check out all the films, all the talks, all the interviews that her and her team has done over the years. So I tried to approach it in a different way, but one extremely interesting thing about Shiley is uh, what do most, you know, mountain climbers, especially really, really accomplished ones going to do, you know, speaking engagements and book tours. Well, Shiley decided to turn that, uh, you know, on its head a little bit and do something a little unique and become a stand-up comedian, literally become a comedian. And so that's what she does now on top of speaking. And, and she kind of ties that in with all her speaking engagements. But I thought it was such a cool conversation, um, such an amazing person. And what a wonderful day to celebrate her story and everything that she has accomplished. So, but enjoy the conversation. You should be able to follow Shiley at all her uh, links in the show notes. All right, let's jump in. Awesome. Well, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today we have... An extremely special guest, Shaili Bosnet. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So I, I always ask this first. Where are you coming from today? And if that's not home, where is home for you? I am right now in Colorado, Golden, Colorado. Um, but I'm originally from Nepal. So yeah, Nepal. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, do you live in Golden now? Uh, yes, I've been splitting my time between U.S. and Nepal um, after the pandemic started, really. Uh, but yeah, because I'm married to uh, somebody from Colorado, uh, we spend time in both places, Colorado and, and Kathmandu. How does, so funny enough, I used to live in Golden. I actually moved away from there during the pandemic. Um, I, and I used to frequent... Uh, Everywhere in Golden, I you know, it was right there at the base of Green Mountain. Um, and uh, love Golden. How how are they similar and how are they different? It, does it is it at all similar to home or is it uh, this place is totally different? Um, it doesn't feel unfamiliar because I've been coming to the U.S. since two thousand nine, and so you know, being married to Tyler, who's who was born and raised in Colorado. Um, his, you know, family is here. So we've always been here. It never feels strange. But uh, at the same time, I was born and raised in Kathmandu and have spent most of my life there. Um, So there is a bigger difference of 
um, how do I say it politically correctly? Like, you know, they say like the developed country versus a country that's still developing. So that's a that's a bigger difference. Culturally, East and West has a massive difference. <laughs> so that feels more striking than the uh, just the place kind of difference. It's I, I love to see that, you know, there are these rolling hills. You can see snow-capped mountains. That's very similar to where I'm from. Wow. So so you talk about, you know, obviously Nepal is extremely well known for the peaks and the Himalayas and, and mountaineering. What was that like for you growing up as a young girl in Nepal? I know that it had to be a different experience. So I was born and raised in Kathmandu, which is the capital of the country. And you're basically in the valley floor. So it is it is so funny because Kathmandu has one of the best weathers in the world. When we're in, in Kathmandu, we always complain, oh, it's too hot, it's too cold. Um, but once you start traveling, uh, then you realize Kathmandu is really a paradise. It never snows. It doesn't get that cold. And uh, most of the houses still don't have air conditioning. So, you know, even the summer isn't that bad. So um, I, sometimes I joke that I'm soft because I get out of Kathmandu and any weather is like either too hot or too cold for me. Um, that's the weather side of things. Uh, but we're a valley surrounded by beautiful hills. Um, the valley is chaotic. You know, any, any uh, I don't know, South Asian city you can imagine. It's chaotic. It's unorganized. It's messy, but it has a vibe and life and energy of its own. So very urban, uh, but you can see these um, great hills. And from Kathmandu itself, you can see the Himalayan peaks. Uh, not Everest, maybe, but um, other big ones. So on clear days, there's your Himalayan peak just smiling on the sky. And then there are these green, beautiful hills. And you know, you're enjoying a city life in the valley. That's that's where I grew up. My connection to Himalayas was just that. We read in our textbooks that we're home to Everest and some of the highest peaks in the world. So as a Nepali, I was always proud, but I didn't really have a direct connection, understanding or meaning of what that means. Why is it special? What does that offer to people in terms of environment or economy or anything else? Uh, or spirituality, and I only got to explore that once I decided to get uh, close to the mountains. So there is, even though the skyline is filled with mountains, that doesn't mean living in Kathmandu uh, automatically gets you access. It's kind of like when, when we lived near Denver, there were a, a striking amount of kids um, you know, young school kids and even the parents and tons of people that, you know, the mountains, they see the mountains every day, but never, ever even think about going to experience them. So it sounds like there's similarities there, too. Of course, yes. And it's changing uh, a lot in today's time. Uh, I'm in my 30s. So, you know, growing up for me, we were still a very survival generation, especially our parents. And that's how we were raised mountaineering and outdoors was always uh, fun things, adventures for the Western people. That's how it started. 
um, in the Himalayan region in Nepal. It was not like, you know, the local people said we want to climb Everest in 1920s or 1950s. Um, so, yeah, the idea of hiking, climbing was when you had to travel from one village to another, when you had to go for a pilgrim at most, or when you had to get medical treatment or when you had to see your family that you hadn't seen for many, many years. So it wasn't, you know, considered something somebody would want to take up just for fun. And um, all our parents, for my generation, let's say millennials, all our parents wanted for us was that we get quality education. Because even that was, you know, um, not, not a given for my parents' generation. And so they wanted to give us best education. They wanted to make sure we're really shaped for, you know, having some kind of decent job and living. So mountains, mountaineering, outdoors was, uh, they still, like, they sometimes, they don't understand it. Sometimes they still think I hike too much. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I tell you what, I think that too. Uh, Whenever I see a beautiful landscape and and think, you know, what, what did earlier generations think? Did they look at this as beauty? You know, did they have the luxury to think of this as recreation or was it just, oh, that's that's beautiful, but we have to keep going. This is we're in survival mode or we're we're on a pilgrimage or something. It is a luxury to be able to look at these landscapes this way and not as a huge obstacle to survival, you know? Yeah. And what I can tell is that um, apart from my experience in climbing, I've also been spending a lot of time, particularly since 2015, when we when Nepal had a big earthquake. Me and my teammate Maya, we've been rebuilding schools and you know doing a lot of uh, empowerment work in a village, which is um, just outside of Kathmandu, a different district, but it's still rural. It's village, and we spend a lot of time there. In all these years, what I can see is that there is uh, there is this sense of stillness. There is a sense of maybe spirituality uh, that this landscape does provide to people. And so uh, that little bit of romanticism, maybe, you know, your houses are gone in the earthquake, you've lost all your property, but somehow you still have um, this air within you to sit and chill and laugh about it. You know, so there is that, that kind of power that people derive from this landscape, but uh, that is kind of, again, way of life, I would say. And life goes on. You have to survive. You have to maybe be in the fields and grow your you know, crops and stuff. You have to send your kids to school. So there is definitely not that, you know, tourists lens of, oh, my God, this is such an amazing place. And um, we're so lucky to be here. There is also the sense of how do we survive and give our give next generation a better future. Wow. And, and while you were talking, I, I was looking at the weather at Kathmandu and it does look amazingly beautiful. It's warm and sunny during the day and nice and cool at night. Um, it's perfect. It, every day is the exact same too. It's, uh, you weren't kidding. It looks beautiful. Uh, we've been reading like, you know, when we were kids, we would be uh, reading these poems that people wrote maybe hundreds of years ago saying, you know, Alkapuri, Kantipuri Nagari, like, you know, saying Kathmandu is like a golden city and Kathmandu has always been uh, prosperous. So we really didn't think much of it. And now here I am in the United States and I've traveled around the world. I've seen winter in Europe 
And I'm like, I sometimes I, I joke that why do people live here? Because <laughs> <laughs> winter, even today when I'm in Kathmandu, winter for me means getting out at maybe nine or ten in the morning with oranges, with a you know a blanket or something that I can put on the ground, and being in the sun. That's winter. <laughs> so yes. I can go on and on about Kathmandu weather. It it it, it absolutely is uh, t-shirt weather there right now. Yes. It's like mid sixties Fahrenheit, completely sunny. Um, I I didn't really realize that. That's pretty cool. I figured you know, uh, mm -hmm. it, it shows how little you actually know about a place. I guess where everyone mind everyone's mind goes to when they think about Nepal is just the mountains, kind of like Colorado. You know, it's the mountains, but there's an entire half of the state that's really just a big field. Um, on the east side, so it, it's it's pretty interesting. Um, <laughs> so you know, all right. So the mountains were more of this thing out there in the distance growing up. Wh when did it become something you were a part of? How did that come about? Where was the opportunity for you? So I, uh, growing up in Kathmandu, I was very uh, lucky that um, my parents were educated, and education was you know, non-negotiable. You had to go to school, you had to get your degree and stuff. So I went to good academic school, I want to say, but the school did not have um, any sports, particularly for girls. And I don't know why that was. It, it it was that. It's not that, you know, girls in Nepal didn't play sports. I, I My friends were from outside the Kathmandu Valley and even other schools in Kathmandu, yeah, they played sports. For some reason, my school didn't. And for some reasons, neither my parents nor I tried to, you know, enroll myself into something sporty when I was a kid. But I knew that that was something missing in my life. As a young girl, I knew that, you know, I have a body, I have hands, legs, lungs, you know, that I can use to jump around, kick a ball, dance, whatever. So I wanted to... I want, I had to, it was very important for me to try and see what my body is capable of doing. So that was my call for anything active. And so when I was in my early 20s, uh, close to mid 20s, actually, I was working as a journalist and I came to uh, find out that there is a team being set up. They were looking for Nepali women who wanted to climb Everest the next year. And this is, I'm talking about summer 2007. I find this out. And the idea is to climb Everest in spring 2008. Um, then I was like, this is my big ticket to adventure. I, I have to give this a shot. And that's how it started for me. And what, what was your feeling going into it? Was it, I'm excited to do this? Or was it, I, I don't know if I can do this. This is, this is not what I've been... This is not the way I've been viewing these mountains my whole life. Or, or were you uh, excited about the opportunity? I was very excited about the opportunity, but everything else you mentioned as well. Um, mixed bag, because I've never played sports and you can't tell from this podcast, but I'm a petite person. Uh, <laughs> my joke is I'm five feet tall on a good day. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when you think of a climber or anyone athletic for that matter, you don't think of somebody like me. And um, I didn't know any better in 2007. Um, you know, the woke culture, I guess, hadn't started. So the whole idea of, you know, what 
what I could achieve, I had to test it myself. So I had those questions. Am I cut out for Everest with this body, with no athletic experience? Um, so those those were there. But I guess I was more excited, um, at least excited enough to give it a shot. I, I knew I was ready that if I didn't make the cut, then I'll find something else to do. By this time, I am... 24 22 24 and i i was dying to do something with my body so i went for a kayaking session i went for rafting i tried bungee jumping i am i you know i'm the most chicken-hearted person i know i can't even jump off like a two-feet wall but i just had to i just had to just try these things. So I, it, it could have been anything. If they were setting up a team to um, swim, I would have joined it. So it, for me, it was more about trying. So when I heard about this, uh, I was excited enough to to say that it may not work out, but I, I have to learn. I have to figure out what they're going to do. What was the reaction of the people around you, maybe your family and friends? Interesting you ask that because when you normally think of climbing Everest, your first, you know, thinking process is, can I climb it? Am I going to die? What kind of physical fitness do I need? What kind of technical fitness do I need? And then maybe you think about money or how much is this going to cost? How will I be able to bring that money? We didn't think of the socioeconomic pressure is what we say. Um, The idea of how you will be um judged or looked at or perceived so the the social part of it the judgmental part of it was at times probably even more difficult um we looked very young we looked petite we didn't have a lot of experience we were a team of 10 women from nepal and we represented six different ethnicities we represented the mountains the mid-hills the flat plains the three kind of main topographies of nepal so we really didn't look like a promising uh, team. And uh, more than maybe the immediate family and friends, it was kind of the larger um, circle around us um, that was that was really challenging at times. We'd be told on our face that this was a recipe for disaster and that we'd end up dead. <laughs> Holy cow! That's a it's <laughs> a recipe for disaster, and we're gonna end up dead. I mean, okay, being you know the inexperienced mountaineer that you were, but having the passion and willingness to do anything. How, how did you deal with that? How did you sift through that that pressure, that social pressure? Uh, a few things helped us. Uh, one was it it was ups and downs. There are also people who want to support you and who believe in you. Uh, So that's always helpful. Uh, Probably the most important factor was that we were a team and we're a team of 10 women and we were so close, so tightly knit, one vision, one common goal. We we became like like a fort or fortress, whatever the right word is. We were um, like... You know, we, we became like a shield together um, and we were able to 
insulate ourselves from all of this noise. Like we'd hear them and we'd be like, would look at each other and would be like, okay, what do we do next? Make that call to, you know, ask for money or go to the gym and train or go for a hike. That was really helpful. Having that right team really made a huge difference. And in general, I don't know if it was about being young or just excited. All of us were very, very optimistic people in that team. I am a super optimist. <laughs> so sometimes my friends get like, um, you know, frustrated that even when we're going through the worst thing, I'll be like, but there's a silver lining. So I'm kind of a little bit of a <laughs> fool in that sense. And that helped. Um, I like to say we're young and stupid and that worked for us. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. One of the most formative things I did in my outdoor slash adventure career was to be a camp counselor. So a couple summers in college, I helped kids learn how to uh, to mountain bike, to climb, to, to, to paddle, you know, canoe, all kinds of stuff. And it was one of the coolest experiences and gave me a lifelong love of uh, sharing these sports with people. And it honestly directly led to me hosting this podcast. And why that excites me so much is because Avid for Adventure reached out to us and said, hey, we have hundreds of summer camp counseling jobs, uh, seasonal jobs all over the country, and we need your help filling them. So if you would like to spend your summer in the mountains teaching kids how to rock climb, mountain bike, hike, kayak, backpack, and everything else you can imagine uh, in places like California, Colorado, the, the Northeast, the Pacific Northwest, be out in the mountains, be out in the woods, be out on the water. If that's how you want to spend your summer and you want to make some money and you want to have access to healthcare and you want to work at one of Outside Magazine's best places to work, then you need to apply for one of these jobs with Avid for Adventure. All you got to do is go to avidforcom slash jobs. The application is only five minutes. And even if you don't think it's a good fit for you, I promise that you know somebody who could fill one of these hundreds of roles that we need to fill this year. Again, that's avid, the number four, dot com slash jobs. Fill out the five-minute application and tell them you heard about it through Adventure Sports Podcast. Let's go have the best summer of your life. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. <laughs> it does come in handy sometimes. It does, you know, when you don't know better, you're willing to do things. Um, oh, yeah. And also, awesome. you know, when when people say all these things, it hurt us. It affected us because it directly affected fundraising, which directly affected whether we're going to be able to climb the mountain or not. And it's very discouraging that, you know, if somebody tested me on an ice wall and said, no, you're not good, then I would be like, okay, maybe I need to work on myself or find something else to do. But when people just look at you and make their judgments, it is harsh. It is hard. But at the same time, somehow, I think if you flip the narrative kind, then you're also, you know, you don't need to give these people importance. It's just their opinion. And you you can be like, I don't care what they say. I'm going to keep doing my, my shit. So that, that, that did kick in. I don't know. I, that would cause me to want to be careful about how I 
talked to people and, and predicted what they can and can't do. Um, wow. And it's almost like you, you them, them saying that actually did affect your ability to do it or not, because it would affect dollars, which would prevent you. So it's almost like them saying you can't do this and sharing that was going to prevent you from it because it had a ripple effect that, that, you know what I'm saying? It's uh, the negative yes. ripple effects. Jeez. It, it had a direct effect. And, you know, when you're a team that's preparing to climb Everest and you're doing everything in your capacity to prepare right for it, until the very last moment, we would kind of sit frustrated, almost depressed, because our discussion always were like, what if there isn't enough money? What if we're only able to send X number of people who will have to, you know, volunteer not to go, who will be kicked out of the team? There were these discussions until the very last minute. And we had so many of these challenges that our um, our departure to the Everest region from Kathmandu, it was postponed thrice. It became embarrassing to be in Kathmandu because we had announced, oh, we're, we're going to leave early April. And here we are still in Kathmandu. And then we're going to leave like the second week of April. And here we are still in Kathmandu. People have started acclimatizing. And, you know, April is when you should be at the base of the mountain, not in Kathmandu. And our expedition was just delayed for a number of reasons. Uh, so it, it directly affected what people thought of us directly affected our ability to be on that mountain for sure. What was the turning point? I know that we can kind of jump ahead here, but what, what you get to the mountain, when did it become clear that you would make it? One of the basic thing on Everest is that, uh, you sign up for uh, something kind of that has a no turning point in a sense where you're you know that you're gonna give your best and you may or may not make it especially when you're a team um, and the idea of team climbing has you know gone down a lot in 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 recent decades but we were a team which meant that even if one of us make it to the summit we're successful as a team so we had that very very clearly defined and there is always that chance that you might get into accident. Um, death is a possibility. You know, every year for I don't know how long, somebody dies on Everest. And that could very well be you. So you're signing up for all these possibilities. So I don't think when you're on Everest, until you make it to the summit, you know that I did it. <laughs> so um, you are in the mountain Normally, expedition takes about 60 days. Our expedition was 45 days. Uh, you go to the base camp. You go to the first camp, spend a night or two, come back down, go to the second camp. You keep acclimatizing for the next several weeks. And then the final summit push. So until the very last summit push, uh, you don't know. And people start the summit push and have turned around or got into accident or died. Those things happen. So the idea that, you know, summit, summit is when summit really happens. The idea that we're going to have a shot at this mountain came in when we had United Nations World Food Program, Government of Nepal, like these big names come and support us, Nepal Mountaineering Association, and I won't be able to list all of them, but 
very credible, you know, legit organizations backing us. We met our prime minister of that time, like twice, I think. And he had this amazing confidence in us. Like when, when a random, you know, stranger is telling us you can't do it. Our prime minister was telling us that um, your expedition won't stop just because of money or something like, you know, stay prepared, like you're, you're going to climb. So having this great band of supporters, I guess, also, also, yeah, made it real for us. Well, I'm, I'm, I, I know that uh, you've probably been asked this a million times, but what did it feel like to stand on that summit? I had the biggest smile inside my oxygen mask. <laughs> Uh, probably my very first thought, one of my first thoughts was that I'm the craziest person on this planet. I looked down at my boot and the crampons gripping the ice and um, rock, you know, beneath. Like I had, I had a, that's like a bookmark moment. I can still kind of feel it when I speak of it. When I'm standing on the summit and I'm looking at my crampons, the rock and the ice, and everything you care about in the world is below you, you know, kind of like the sky is below you, the horizon is below you. And I was thinking, about a year ago, I said, I'm going to climb Everest. And right now, I'm on top of Everest. I'm the craziest person on this planet. That was my first thought. <laughs> I am the tallest five foot person on this planet <laughs> today. <laughs> I can't even imagine the feeling of, of having that much against you. Um, doing a world's first with an all Nepali women's team um, and standing on the highest summit in the world. But the crazy thing was that was just the beginning of the story because y'all had the goal and the ambition to climb the seven summits. Coming back down the mountain, what were some of the first things you noticed that were different about your life? Um, and how did you even start to think about the next summits? When we came down, it was crazy. I remember at one of the stops, because we trekked back from the base camp to the nearest airfield, which, is take, which takes like three days. And during one of our lunch breaks, uh, we started getting mobile reception and um, cellular reception. And one of my teammates, Chunu, she was speaking so loudly on the phone that I got really annoyed. And I was like, Chunu, like, can you shut up or something like that? And she just gives me the phone, her mobile phone and says, it's your mother. <laughs> and so she was talking to my mom on the cell phone and we had been away from any kind of communication rest of civilization for so long that that felt really weird that somebody would be on a phone and of all the people it was my mom and my mom said the phone just won't stop ringing everybody's calling you are on like you know you as in my entire team was on the front page of all the leading you know newspapers were on tv were everywhere and she was like it's it's crazy and i was like okay well we did not kind of anticipate something like this but you know this is okay news and when we arrived at the airport we received a big hero's welcome there was like an ocean of people 
um, it was just overwhelming. And uh, we knew that this meant big for the country, um, for women, for probably everybody, for young people. So this was, we were huge, like in, in that moment. Um, and we got so excited with that. Uh, we thought, why should we stop now? We are young. We've climbed a big mountain with 100% success. So why stop now? Let's keep going. And with all of this, you know, overwhelming response, uh, it sure won't be um, difficult anymore. People believe in us now. We have credibility. And that's when we decided we should do the seven summits. Uh, now that is another long story <laughs> where, yes, we were celebrated and finally we had credibility and people applauded us, but uh, that didn't change the fundraising uh, dynamic at all. We still had the same financial struggle we had for Everest. I've, I've talked to enough adventurers and enough people doing ideas like this that the adventure sometimes is the easy part. It's the preparation, the fundraising, uh, and getting there that is the bigger logistical challenge that a lot of people don't really see, clearly don't see when they see you standing on top of the world's highest mountain. I have to agree. And with all due respect to the mountains, I'm always careful when I say that climbing was the easier part. Um, climbing is never easy. Uh, all the mountains you've been on, even the you know easiest climb, the smallest climb, um, which is just an urban climb, people have died on those mountains. So yes, in that sense, you know, climbing is still challenging and it deserves all your respect. Uh, having said that, when the reason people like us say that the climbing was the easier part is because when you're on the mountain, it, life is so simple. This, there's this mountain in front of you. You have your team. You put one foot, like one foot in front of the other. That's it. It is calm. It is meditative. And sometimes we break into singing and dancing. Um, and you're even allowed to eat some junk food because you're going to burn all of it anyways. So life is, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> life is super simple. It is, it couldn't be, it couldn't be any more sorted when you're on the mountain. And, and that's the, that's the beauty I think full of it. But when you're preparing for it, um, we're not marketing experts. We're not fundraisers. We don't know how finances work. Uh, we're not branding experts. And you have to do all of this. You have to know when to put on a sari and when to put on your, you know, climbing attire. This that stuff. So, so you know, you get down. You have this flood of of attention and of congratulations. Um. And then you set your sights on the seven summits at some point. What did you start to do to prepare for that? And which one uh, did you want to tackle next? Did you want, I mean, you went for the biggest one right out of the gate. So you had the, <laughs> you had what a lot of people think is the hardest one probably out of the way. But you tell me what was, um, how did you go about planning the next six? So uh, for us, uh, after climbing Everest, we wanted to uh, climb in Australia because that would have been the least expensive. And uh, we also, um, we, we like, it was, I think 2010 was 
50 years of diplomatic relations between Nepal and Australia. And those things, you know, are always great to help your own cause and stuff. So we decided with Australia first, uh, got amazing friends in Australia, randomly like groups emailing us and, you know, sponsoring our stay or even climb. So that went really well. It wasn't a hard mountain to climb, but uh, I always, I, I, I say, borrowing Neil Armstrong's words, it was a small climb, but a giant leap for my team, for a team of young women from Nepal to get out not only of our, you know, comfort zone of our um, country to go to a different continent as a team and climb a mountain that was rich for us. After that, uh, we decided to go to Russia to climb Mount Elbrus, highest in Europe. Um, and that was uh, based on the season when, you know, summer is when you climb that mountain. So that aligned uh, well. And after those two mountains, uh, I think the hype around our team kind of died down. Maybe people had other things to focus on and uh, we didn't get uh, much sponsorship and all. Uh, we had taken loans even to climb in Russia. So it wasn't easy. And uh, we had to wait another two and a half years before we could go to our next mountain. And um, we picked Kilimanjaro again for financial reasons because it was going to be least expensive. And it was also a mountain you could basically climb anytime in the year. So we didn't have to be kind of, you know, limited by the climbing season scenario. Uh, those two and a half years, we didn't know how the team is going to you know, move ahead and how we're going to figure this out, how we're going to get the support that we need. So uh, we we had no other option but to stick with Kilimanjaro. And once we climbed Kilimanjaro, um, then, then people really started believing in us. Before Kilimanjaro, after Everest and two other climbs, again, there people were like, yeah, great, but they're not going to stick around and complete the whole mission. That was kind of the perception people had. But after climbing Kilimanjaro, same people were like, oh, these girls might take 20 years, but they'll do it. Like they've they proved themselves. So that helped. And then in the year 2014, uh, we went for three climbs in a single year. So we started with Aconcagua in the Andes, highest in South America, in February, then Denali in the summer, and Vincent Massif in Antarctica in December. What What were you doing since this was such a, a a long goal? You know, two years in between these climbs, some of them, and then you know, some of them grouped together, like you just mentioned. How were How were you preparing? What were you doing in between? Was it you know finding jobs that you could work, fundraising, of course, training? Um, how was it? How did you deal with waiting that long in between? Because that's that's a that's that's you know what is that, eight years in the making, six years in the making, yeah, all said and yeah. said and done. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the hardest uh, time of my life ever. It, uh, I, I reached my rock bottom, and I think it, it was not clinical depression. I didn't have to seek like you know psychiatric help or anything. Um, but I was close, I think, um, if I understand it correctly, emotional, you know, depression for sure. And there were times, uh, there were times when I was like, I could kind of see, you know, the threshold between sanity and insanity. 
because I'm super dedicated to the mission. So so were my teammates, but there is no way forward. Um, people say Nepal is a small country and I always correct them. No, we're home to Everest and the big mountains. We can't be a small country, but we are a small economy. We don't have, you know, I guess businesses at the time, given our political situation also, they were not signing a big checks and we didn't know how to make money, but we're committed to the idea. So not knowing how to move ahead took a toll uh, on all of our mental health and um, everything else. So what we're doing at this time, we're, we're still meeting. We're asking ourselves, can we do this? Like, is this is this too big uh, a bite for us? Uh, should we drop the idea? And the seven teammates who were remaining in my team, seven of us, we decided that, no, we're not going to give up on our own dream. So uh, then we're like, how do we keep going? Uh, there was a lot of soul searching, crying. <laughs> um, I also got married at this point of time in 2010. Um, I'm very, you know, very, very Which thankful. Which is also that... very depressing. Um, <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> no, I'm so thankful. It saved me. It did save me because... Uh, Tyler is super supportive. He understood what exactly I was going through and what kind of support I needed. And also, kind of ironic, but I started doing stand-up comedy around this time. That so. is one of the things I could not wait to ask you about because I I have never in my life seen a mountaineer do comedy. And I'm I'm a I like to be funny. I like funny people and my friends are all funny and I feel like it's not present in the adventure world ever. It's so serious all the time. How in the world did you get into comedy? I was going through really rough time and I didn't have a lot to do. I was just home doing nothing. And I, at, at one point I started just writing down these thoughts that I had. I always had crazy thoughts in my head. So, I remember being in college where a teacher would be, you know, teaching and I would have these crazy, um, silly thoughts and they'd be so powerful. I had to write them down in my notebook and I would write them down and I would scold myself in my head. I would be like, Shaili, you're here to study. Why are you doing this stupid thing? Because at that time, I didn't know there was something called stand up. I didn't know it was a craft, that it could be a career. So I just thought, is a little crazy in me and later thanks to the internet youtube globalization i guess when i learned that there is something called stand-up i was like oh my god that's what my head is doing so i had to write these things down and i have this tendency that when things really go bad in my life um there is like an observer watching everything and finding the irony finding the funny in all of this. So that's what I started writing down and it became a script. And I think it literally saved me. It became my stress buster from all these other heavy duty stuff. So that's how I got into comedy. It's, you know, Nepal is not known for stand-up stand comedy. I don't think, maybe there is a scene, but how are you able to express this new gift or passion or, or just thing hobby you're having fun with 
what were you were you able to make videos or, or, or do you know bits somewhere nearby? What were you doing with all the material? So Kathmandu um, is like any cosmopolitan city in the world. So people were very familiar with stand up through again the internet and entertainment, other you know mediums. But the culture of stand-up was not there. Like, culture of comedy is great in Nepal. Our comedy stars are bigger than our, like, rock stars, but not uh, in the format of stand-up. So I started telling, I actually told my publisher, the magazine I worked for, Kanakwani Dikshida, I told him I want to do stand-up comedy. And then he told a few other people. I told other people. I joined Toastmasters. It's a speaking and leadership, like, club. And um, I, I tried, I started trying my material uh, at Toastmasters Club and I got really good response. You spoke for like seven minutes, five to seven minutes. And uh, every uh, speech I did, I got great response. And I heard from, you know, my club members saying, oh, you're ready for a stand-up. So that gave me the training and uh, confidence. Uh, and when I told my publisher, he was like, I'm giving you this hall. I'm inviting the people. And I'll connect you with like a couple of people who want to try it as well. And you go ahead and produce this show. So that's how, you know, it, it came together. When I, in 2011, I think September, I did my first show. There were more than 100 people in that hall. And I went up on stage for more than 40, 45 minutes. And I killed it. It, it was amazing. <laughs> And I really think that I, in, in these more than 10 years, I haven't talked myself. Like my first show was still my best show. Uh, I guess I had so much to vent out <laughs> that like everything going down with my climbing expedition that I, I gave my all to, to the script that I wrote. Um, and from then I, I continued, uh, doing like doing more shows, but at that time it meant you have to produce everything. So, you know, you sell the tickets, you, you decide which day, which venue, how many people, what if enough people didn't show up? What if too many people showed up? Um, there is no open mic. So for the first, at least, I don't know, five, six years of doing comedy, I, never had the luxury of doing any open mics in Nepal. Um, you just wrote the script and you believe that it will work and you produce the whole show and you sold tickets and you tried your luck. What were you more nervous about, climbing Everest or getting up in front of people for the first time to do comedy? Okay, climbing for sure. <laughs> climbing for sure, really? <laughs> climbing for sure because um, I am not good at doing anything physically challenging and it's probably because of not playing sports when you're growing up so even today if I decide to go climb a mountain um, I'll have to plan plan a lot I, I don't have the natural kind of um, programming of an athlete it's still it still work for me whereas I've always been uh, talkative so I've not been scared to speak in front of people. And, um, you know, when you start something like stand-up, you have to be a little bit arrogant. You have to believe that you're good. <laughs> so uh, so when you start with that, it's helpful. I think I started doing comedy in 2011, and it was around 2016, 2017, when I was like, oh, my God, I don't know anything. 
I'm a bad comic. How did I even do all these shows all these years? I'm terrible. And I felt like I had to start from zero. So uh, the first few years, because again, ignorance is bliss. I was, I think, shielded from the fear factor of it. And so you're starting your your comedy career and training for all these mountains. It's just two totally different worlds. Do you feel like <laughs> having that comedy mindset and um, were you able to bring that into the group dynamics and keep things lighthearted? And it, did you think it helped you climb? Of course, yes. And I don't even think I'm a funny person. I'm definitely not the funniest person. All of my teammates, oh my God, they're amazing. I love them. They're funny. We laugh a lot. We sing a lot. We dance on the mountains. So we're all very, very, I don't know, happy-go-lucky, if that's the term. So it's always fun being around them. I laugh the most when I'm with them. And having this side of me definitely uh, was helpful to me, to my teammates. But I got more from them than... I think I gave them, um, we are a fun team where there's never a dull, boring moment when we're together, um, a crackling team. So there, and then there are times when things uh, don't go well, when we had to turn around from mountains, um, during some treks, you know, we had situations where two teams went two separate ways and we don't know where the rest of the members are and all of that. Um, we are disciplined and everything we do everything in our capacity that we can do to save the situation but after that it's we resort to laughing so um i I think i do derive a lot of energy uh that positive fun energy from my team when you were doing uh the big push in 2014 to climb Aconcagua, Denali, and Vincent Massif to to finish off the Seven Summits. Things didn't go to plan in South America. Can you talk about that experience? Like what happened? Um, Because it's such a juxtaposition against, you know, the fun lightheartedness to kind of something pretty serious happened and not being able to to climb it. Yeah. So before uh, 2014, as a team, we'd all always made it uh, to the summit Uh, mostly together, always 100% success. And when we were uh, headed for Aconcagua, we already climbed a few mountains by this time, you know, Everest of them all. So we didn't think Aconcagua would be that bad of a challenge. And and you were already Uh, over halfway through the challenge too. Yes. and, And yeah, by all means, Aconcagua is not Everest. Of course, yes. And I still remember when we did our gear check, um, I looked at the mittens of at least three of my team members and I kind of uh, yelled, maybe. Uh, anyways, I complained that this is not good. So, And we were always very, very tight on money. So I, we went to a store and I rented nice mittens for three of my friends, maybe four. And I was using the same mitten that I used on Everest on 2008. And I was like, they work for Everest, they'll work for Aconcagua. So I didn't get myself new mittens. And I remember the the day when we were pushing for the summit, because of the weather, um, we we were there in February, weather was like the season was closing in and uh, weather forecast wasn't great. We had like a one day window. 
So we had to approach from the second camp. Usually people approach the summit from the third camp, but uh, we had to go with second camp. So we started, and I remember around, like, very beginning, um, I, I told my friends that I was having this, what we call frost nip. It's not frostbite, but it's the beginning of frostbite uh, on my thumb. I could, like, there was one point where you can feel as if like a needle is being you know pinned inside of your thumb so and it's it's coming it's because of the cold so i had that and my friends were like oh don't worry let's keep going we've just started and once we you know move body will generate heat and also will catch more sunlight in an hour or so so that should also help that made sense so i kept going but um it didn't change at all it just kept getting worse and worse no amount of heat from movement or the sun helped it and we reached um, this camp called plaza de independencia i think it's around i want to say 6400 meters you can see the summit from there and the summit is about two hours from there um so i was there and uh, another friend of mine was also having issues and um I felt like I was dragging my team behind. I was having issues and I was slowing them down. So I had, by this time, I'd been telling them, you know, you should go ahead. Like the four members who were, you know, in top shape, like you keep going, you keep going. And they were like, no, no, we're a team. We go together. When we reached there, uh, two of us were having issues. We needed a moment. So we told them um, we need to, you know, we need a few minutes. Why don't you keep going? And we let them go and then the three of us were behind we decided that um we should turn around and not jeopardize like our team's success so yeah very close to the summit um i mean we lied to half of our team that were coming and we didn't um and we decided to turn around it was hard uh, but it happened yeah that that's that's so tough knowing that you had all completed the four mountains before by all means, at least two of them of equivalent difficulty. I don't know how Kilimanjaro compares to Aconcagua, but then still having two fairly difficult mountains to up ahead, how did you put that behind you? And were you both all able to summit Denali and Vincent Massive down in Antarctica? So I was, uh, uh, after the Aconcagua climb, I volunteered, um, to stay behind for the other two clients for various reasons. Antarctica, simply because it was so expensive. It's close to $50,000 a person. And we had sponsorship to cover like 3.1 person. So we took some loan and we sent 14 members, which meant three of us had to stay behind. And uh, again, right from the very beginning, we knew we're a team. And it was never a competition of, I have to be on the summit. It was always about, even if one person from our team completed the seven summits, we're successful as a team. We were very clear about that. So, and especially for me, since I was leading the team, my job was always to put my team and my team's safety first. And I I should always be the last person, you know, last choice to be on on the summit team. Um, so uh, it, it was it was a no brainer uh, for me. And so uh, Denali, we had some uh, issues. So um, I stayed at the base camp 
and um, I got to see the mountain. I was in Alaska. It was beautiful. It was great. But I had other jobs to do as the team's leader. And uh, Antarctica, there wasn't enough funds, so I volunteered to stay back. Um, but after um, the you know turning around in Aconcagua, it was we knew we had taken the right decision, and we started scaling down. And at one point. Um, three of us were turning around, were crying, and I still remember um, Maya, my other friend who was having some issues. She said that we won again. Uh, she said that in Nepali, and I'll never forget that. Maybe it should be the title of my book <laughs> whenever I write it. Uh, we won again, and that was so profound and so true. Coming back from a mountain is always winning, always winning. I still have my thumb. That mountain is still there. We can go climb any day. But more importantly, we're a team and all of us came back alive and intact. And so that was our first real test by a mountain. We did have a little bit of hesitation thinking, oh, the whole you know, country's media's eyes are on us. Their sponsors who've given us money. So maybe, you know, we've been 100% success before this. So maybe we'll be kind of looked down when we go back home. But when we reached back home, it was completely different. More people came to support us, and they literally told us that before Aconcagua, they thought we were just a bunch of young, chirpy, over-energetic young girls, you know, going about mountains. But after Aconcagua, they said that they trusted us as climbers, as mature individuals who can take the right decision at the right time, and they wanted to support our future climbs. Isn't that amazing? Coming back home alive and safe is, and with all your fingers, is way more important than being able to say you, you climb something. Um, and also, working as a team, like you said you did, is those are skills, and those are that's a mindset that is going to carry you much farther than being able to say you summited seven seven mountains. Absolutely, absolutely. There is, if it were to happen all over again, I would sign up for it in a heartbeat. You know, uh, there's so much richness, um, fulfillingness, satisfaction, um, sense of achievement, all of that. There's so there's purpose to it. There's meaning to it. Um, that you cannot get from anything else by, you know, reading about it or watching it. Um, when you're tested, that's, that's when you find your strength, right? That's when it's not, it's not the summits that define you. It's the turning around moment that define you, what kind of person, what kind of leader, what kind of climber you are. And when we came back from the summit, can you believe it was the girls, the four of my teammates who made it on the summit, who were crying and crying their eyes out because they thought we should have been on the summit together with us. And we, the ones who didn't make it, were the ones consoling them that it's okay, we're a team. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. That's amazing. <laughs> so part of the team at least finished the seven summits. This was 2014. Tell us about some of the aftermath of this adventure and this experience, I know it has led to other opportunities, but tell us what you've been doing and um, some of the doors this may have opened for you. 
2014 and uh, my team completes the climb in Antarctica and uh, 2015 we wanted to have a big celebration you know party <laughs> invite all the supporters and everything but that didn't happen because we had that big earthquake in April in 2015 and without having time to process or analyze anything we're sucked into recovery work my friend Maya Gurung, she's from this district, Sindhupalchuk, which was worst hit in the earthquake. So we started with sending some relief uh, supplies and we started supporting schools. We started, um, you know, providing afternoon meal to like 2000 kids for two years uh, just so that they would come back to school. And uh, the program was so successful. It's been adopted by the local government um, in some of the schools who were very proud of it. We also built schools after the earthquake. And because of the earthquake, we kind of caught ourselves working with the schools. But we realized that even before the earthquake, the schools weren't in great shape. They needed a lot of support, um, the quality of education, infrastructure, all of that needs a major uplift. So we've stayed with the schools. We still, it's a very small scale right now, but still we haven't um, stopped doing what we can do. Um, so that's one work that continues. Apart from that, um, in late 2014, we started working with a group of uh, young women who are survivors of sex trafficking. They were trafficked to work as sex workers, um, as minors, um, when they were as young as 14, 12, even nine. And once they're back to Nepal, somehow, once they manage to be back, they don't have education, they don't have means of livelihood, they're still stuck in poverty, and now the society looks down on them. So we partnered with um, this amazing organization called Sakti Samua, and we have a partner organization here in the United States, uh, Courageous Girls, led by our very close climber friend, Sylvia. So we've been training uh, young women from vulnerable you know, situations, and I'm very proud to tell you that um, three of our um, sisters have earned their trekking guide license. So if you wanted to come climb a mountain in Nepal, we'll, we'll be able to provide you this kick-ass boss lady who will guide you. And um, that's been amazing, amazing, amazing opportunity. Uh, we've done two pilot patches. And now this year, 2022, we're going to start a female leadership academy. And we're looking at taking 100 plus women under our wings and uh, doing this in a larger scale. To be able to put your own celebration aside and, and, and put your newfound skills and what you're not newfound, but your skills to work helping others, that just speaks volumes to the type of people this, this group is. Um, do you still stay in touch with all the women on the team? Yeah, we're all still uh, close friends. Uh, Maya and I work closely. We, we uh, are leading these projects um, on behalf of the entire team. Obviously, you know, uh, now everybody has carried on uh, starting families, new careers, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but Maya and I are um, still uh, kind of leading the board, the nonprofit that we have in Nepal, leading these uh, projects hands-on. Um, apart from apart from these, um, we also are in the tourism industry. So if people wanted to come trek in Nepal, climb in Nepal, we have a trekking company called Everest Women Treks. Um, so that's there. 
I personally make my living as a keynote speaker. So I've been doing corporate talks and um, yeah, that, that's, that's neat because um, you get to talk to people, most of whom will probably never climb Everest and share you know, what you've learned and what can help them in their own lives. And it also helps to pay my bills. So that's awesome. And uh, I do have bigger plans with my comedy. So um, I was going to yeah. say at the comedy uh, speaking engagement, I'm sure there's a, or, or at the, not the comedy, at the speaking, the corporate speaking engagements, I'm sure there's a fair amount of comedy, hopefully. Yes, <laughs> there, <laughs> okay. there has to be. And you know, like, you know, you do all this talk, right? And you talk about all the hardships you faced and the achievement and, you know, the good work that you're doing, all of that. And at the end of the day, people want to know, how do you go to the bathroom? <laughs> in the mountains that's hilarious <laughs> so um there has to be comedy and you know i got to meet peter hillary um he's edmund hillary's son um and a and a bona fide climber in his own right he's climbed everest at least a couple times i think um he's very well respected in the community and i was talking to him a couple years ago just before the pandemic hit and we we're talking about you know all our adventures and stuff and I also obviously had to let him know I do comedy, but I was almost embarrassed because <laughs> this is like so ironic. And I was like, yeah, by the way, I also do stand up. And he was so happy to hear it. He was like, oh, that's perfect. Because as climbers, we see such intense and hardships of life. And uh, we come across very real problems of, you know, real people that sometimes it can be too dense for a lot of people so comedy might be the right language to get it across and i just wanted to bow down to him and be like thank you for your blessings anything else you want to share about how people could could get in touch with you or or anything else you have plans for that you'd like to share because being so young with such massive uh achievements i, I i'm sure it's sometimes hard to say all right what, what can i do now that can top that <laughs> well, um, I I do have kind of a agenda, let's say, <laughs> in my life where um, you know I didn't I didn't get into climbing because I'm some kind of daredevil um, or I'm good at it. I, I suck at it. I'm not good at it all at all. I have to work very hard on myself, um, and and that's what gives me the satisfaction. Um, and I do comedy and speaking because. Uh, these are some things I'm probably better at, and um, I love to bring the two worlds together, um, and and that gives me a lot of joy. So the vision in front of me right now is to really um, do that more. I'm planning, hopefully, to do big comedy shows, like start doing shows in theaters, Right now, I'm thinking of, uh, I'm planning to maybe do a show in San Francisco, where our nonprofit Courageous Girls is based. Uh, by the way, to the listeners um, who are interested, uh, if you can, please go buy my friend Sylvia Vasquez Lovato's book, In the Shadow of the Mountains. Um, uh, she is she, she's an abuse survivor uh, from Peru who built an amazing career for herself in the ID industry in, in the Silicon Valley here. 
and then found healing in climbing these mountains. And that's how we got started with this Female Leadership Academy. Um, so, yeah, uh, so we are we are planning to do a big fundraiser uh, comedy show in San Francisco, hopefully in October. Uh, the details will come out in probably a couple months and people can find about the show and rest of the journey, rest of the work that me and my team does on our website, sevensummitswomen.org or my personal website, charliewasnet.com. And I'm on various socials. I'm always happy to talk to people and, you know, learn about themselves and share about myself. Shiley Bosnett, thank you so much. We'll, we'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye. All right, bye. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.